One little piece of housekeeping before we get going. My name is Mark, and I spell that M-A-R-Q, not C or K, Q as God intended. And I want to make that clear for those who might want to send me hate mail after this sermon today. Actually, no, I thought I should tell you my name because last week at the visitor's luncheon, someone told me that there was a time when among their circle of friends, they weren't quite sure who I was or what my name was. And so they simply referred to me as the Hobbit guy or something like that. And that's totally cool. Uh, I've been called much worse in my life. Uh, I'm just so thankful that they did not go full on Gollum and refer to me as the fat one. I don't know that I would have recovered from that. So my name is Mark, not Mariotic, Brandy Buck, Frodo, or Samwise Gamgee, as cool as that would be. But we're not here to talk about me today, are we? We are here to talk about Jesus and his teaching and to come to his table and take communion. We have been listening to the Sermon on the Mount for the past several weeks. And to remind you of where we are, Jesus has gone up on a mount and he sat down and he opened his mouth and he began to teach And he was teaching people just like you and me, people from all walks of life with different experiences and backgrounds, people with all sorts of troubles and issues in their life. And he gathers them together to teach them about a new way of life. He's teaching people much like us who had been raised up in what we might call the God-haunted world, to misquote Flannery O'Connor. They grew up in a kind of Bible belt, so to speak. And that means that they had learned all kinds of scripture and they had learned all kinds of things from culture and they had mashed those things together. As it was in their time, it is in our time, sometimes it's very difficult to tell where true religion ends and folk religion begins. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is helping us by deconstructing folk religion and reconstructing true religion. Folk religion says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Folk religion mixes the ethics of God with the ethics ethics of man. God says, love your neighbor as yourself, but man adds, hate your enemy. And if we're honest, we have to say that hate your enemy part kind of seems right. It sort of feels good. I mean, it's the most natural thing to do. But when you add things to the word of God, you generate all sorts of problems. You're not making the word of God better. You're making the word of God worse. And this is a problem that has been in the world from the beginning. It continues to this day. You go all the way back to the beginning where our mother Eve did this in her conversation with the serpent. She said to the serpent in answer to a question he offered, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden And here she adds, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
A friend told me about a time when an elder at his church was doing a public reading of scripture in worship from the beautiful passage in Romans 8. And at the end, it says, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the elder added, except we ourselves, the word of the Lord. And the congregation said, amen, as if they had just heard the word of the Lord and not considered it also the word of man. When people add things to the word of God, it weakens the power of God's word. It makes it worse, not better. Not only for the word of God, but for the people of God. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy are two mutually exclusive commandments. You can do one, or the other, but you can't do both. You can do one for a little while and do the other for a little while, but you can't do both at the same time. And the reason you can't is because even our enemies are our neighbors. So if you hate your neighbor, how can you also love your neighbor? Jesus is deconstructing the folk religion of the Pharisees and perhaps the folk religion in our hearts as well. The Pharisees were famous for combining God's law and man's law. They were famous for combining the two, teaching the commandments of men as if they were the commandments of God. And they got away with it for so long that people started to kind of think and feel that what they were doing was in fact preaching the law of God. Jesus comes along and says, no, what we actually have here is a clash of worldviews, a collision of ideas, a conflict of interests. Now, to be fair, there were two trends that took place in Jesus's day among the Jewish people. Two trends. There was one trend where people would hear what the Pharisees said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, and they ran with it. They took it to heart and they hated anyone and everyone that was not like them. In other words, not Jewish, not among God's elect, God's chosen people. There were rabbis who even taught that non-Jewish people were simply created by God to fuel the fires of hell. Now that's some next level hatred. They especially hated the Romans who had invaded and occupied their land and they felt like prisoners in their own nation. And so the idea that you could love your neighbor, your Jewish neighbor, and hate your enemy, the Romans, that really spoke to people in those days. It fueled their racism, their nationalism. It gave them a reason to not like or love those non-Jewish people. Some Americans feel this way about non-Americans. Some conservatives feel this way about liberals. Some liberals feel this way about conservatives. Some Christians feel this way about non-Christians. And some Christians feel this way about other Christians who are in a different tradition or tribe than they're in. They love their neighbor, but they hate their enemy. Because anyone that's not like them is perceived as being their enemy. 
The other trend that Jesus faced in his day was that some people actually stopped short of hating other people who were not Jewish. They tolerated them. They put up with them, but they didn't love them. They were tempered by God's word, which said things like this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to your enemy. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. The proverb said, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let your let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from your enemy. So those people would temper their hatred and they would say something like this. It's not that I hate them. It's just that I really, really, really don't like them. It reminds me of the time my wife asked one of our kids what he thought about his dinner. And he said, I like it. It's just disgusting. <laughs> so before we move on, I want you to take a moment to list out some of your enemies, real or perceived enemies in your own heart and mind. Think about who they are. Think about their faces, their words, their names. It might be an abusive person, an antagonistic boss, an angry neighbor, an aggressive bully. Make sure you see their faces and use their names. And then you begin to feel something of the weight of what Jesus said when he says that is the person you are called to love. That is the person you're called to pray for. True religion says, love your neighbors and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, if you want to demonstrate that you belong to God's family, then you need to act like your father. He seems to love people with an impartial kind of love, a love that does not show favoritism, a love that sends sunshine on everyone and rain on everyone. I don't know if you noticed this past week, but with all of the rain and the sunshine, did you notice that it didn't just fall on you? You didn't just reap the benefits, but everyone around you did, even those nasty enemies that you despise in your heart reap the benefits of God's blessing. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So everything he teaches here is rooted and grounded in the law of God. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, I want you to understand that he is not making up a command out of thin air. He is actually echoing and applying the law of God found in the book of Leviticus and other places. In other words, this teaching is rooted and grounded in the scripture. So contrary to the Pharisees, the law never commands, hate your enemy. It actually says the reverse, the exact opposite. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. And notice here that brother and neighbor are used synonymously. You don't get to distinguish between the two. Well, I love my brother, but I hate my neighbor. And my neighbor might be an enemy. No, they all go together. In context, your neighbor is defined as the poor, the immigrant, the blue-collar day wage worker, the physically disabled, the very important and the not-so-important, siblings, family, and friends, insiders and outsiders. In other words, your neighbor is anyone who is near you and anyone who is near you that is made in the image and likeness of God, which is to say everyone around you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your gay neighbor and your straight neighbor. The undocumented neighbor and the documented neighbor. Your liberal neighbor, your conservative neighbor, your drunk neighbor, your sober neighbor, your law-abiding neighbor, your law-breaking neighbor. Shall we go on? You see what Jesus is getting at here is you don't get to decide who your neighbor is or is not. God decides that by putting you in the world with other image bearers. And you are called to love them as you love yourself. The law commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. That means you love people who are like you and not like you. You love people that love you and don't love you. You love people who are similar to you and different from you. Why? Because Jesus is calling you to a higher ethic, a new way of life, to imitate your father, to flesh out his love in the world. He's calling you to embody a love that transcends ethnic and racial and social boundaries, an extraordinary love that seeks the good of all people, including enemies, and especially in our prayers. Love is hard work. Scott McKnight, Scott McKnight put it this way. Enemy love is not a magic formula. It's not a trick. It's a posture toward every human being we meet. We are challenged in this passage to discern whom we treat or perceive as enemies those we claim to love but don't actually love, those who never sit at the table with us, those we label and those we libel, and we love them to convert our enemies into neighbors, into friends, simply by extending the love of Christ to them. Love is hard work. And the truth is that some of our neighbors are impatient and grouchy. 
They are jealous and proud. They are stubborn and rude. They insist on having their own way. They are easily irritated or resentful. They are hateful and mean. You know people like that. And there are people who say that about you at one time or another. None of us have it all together. None of us loves as we ought to love. None of us receive love as we ought to receive it. But this is what Jesus is calling us to. The bottom line is that we all lack the true love of God in our hearts. We could all use a little more love. Love from others. Love for others. And it's something we're growing in, right? It's something we're growing in. But here's motivation for you. Here's why I want you to think about what Jesus says about this kind of love. Here's how it might take shape in your life. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to be far more interested in showing them mercy than in paying them back and getting even. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to be far less inclined to assassinate people with our anger and our hatred. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to be far less interested in coveting their things or wishing that we had it better than they do or that they have it worse than they have it now. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to be far less inclined to distort the truth, to steal from others, to cheat, defraud them. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we would be far less interested in seeking revenge against our enemies. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we would be perfect as our father is perfect. We would show no partiality or favoritism. Our love for others would be well-rounded. It would be complete. It would be balanced and whole. That's what it means to be perfect as your father is perfect. It doesn't mean to be morally flawless. It doesn't mean to be without error. It means to be impartial, all-embracing, to have a gigantic heart that shows concern for others. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Martin Luther King put it this way, Love is the most durable power in the world. This creative force so beautifully exemplified in the life of Christ is the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. And he ain't wrong about that. Jesus teaches us to change our minds about our enemies by growing in our love for them. How do you do that? How do you change your mind about enemies? Well, one way is by keeping in mind that something far more important than our own personal dignity is at stake. Our neighbors, our friends, our enemies need mercy. Just like us, they need to be reconciled to God just like us. So beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is teaching us some hard truths in the Sermon on the Mount. But saying is one thing, doing is another, isn't it? It's easy to say all of this. It's easy to sit on the Mount and open your mouth and say these things. But the question is, does he practice what he preaches? 
That's what we should ask of all preachers. Does he practice what he preaches? Did Jesus love his enemies and pray for those who persecuted him? Well, let's take a look at the life of Jesus and see. And what we see is that Jesus did not retaliate against the one who was evil. He did not stand against the life of his neighbors or of his enemies, nor did he exercise his rights for justice under the law. He gave his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard, and he did not hide his face from disgrace or from spitting. When they insulted him, he did not open his mouth. When they spit in his face and struck him on the head and slapped him again and again, he turned the other cheek. When they took his tunic, he gave them his cloak as well. When they forced him to go from the garden to the temple to the palace, he went all the way to the cross. When they asked for his blood to be on their heads, he did not refuse to give his life as a ransom for many. When they hated him, he loved him. He loved them. And when they persecuted him, even unto death, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. When they cursed him, he blessed them. Jesus was perfect as his father is perfect. He showed no partiality or favoritism in his life and ministry. He desired mercy, not sacrifice. He practiced what he preached. He loved his neighbor as himself, even on pain of death. He loved his enemies and prayed for them to the point that some of their hearts were changed and they even acknowledged the truth about him. Truly, he was the son of God. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, including our enemies, with this same kind of love. And for those of you who are still struggling to embrace Jesus' teaching on this point, and especially for those of you who are flat out resisting it, let me remind you of who you were and what you were when Jesus found you and what he did for you. The Spirit says, once we were alienated from God. Once we were enemies of God in our minds as evidenced by our sinful behavior. And while we were still weak, he loved us. And while we were still sinners, he loved us and died for us. And while we were still his enemies, he loved us and died for us and saved us. And because Jesus loved his enemies and prayed for them, we now rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation, peace with God. For he has reconciled us to himself in the body of his flesh by his death on the cross in order to present us to his father as a transformed people, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You were enemies of Christ. And he loved you and prayed for you until you changed. And now here you are. 
And since Jesus loved his enemies and prayed for them, even when we took advantage of him, can we not find it in our hearts to bless those who persecute us without cursing them? To repay no one evil for evil, but to live peaceably with all people. To never try to get back or to get even, but to leave it all in God's hands. To help your enemy if she's in need. To give them food when they're hungry, drink when they're thirsty. To overcome evil with good, to owe no one anything except to love each other. This is what it means to be perfect as your father is perfect. In his book, The Magnificent Defeat, Frederick Buchner says, The love for equals is a human thing. The love of a friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, and the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing, to love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man, the world is always bewildered by its saints. But then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. This is the love that wins hearts and minds. This is the love that wins souls for the glory of Christ and for the life of the world. This is the love that overcomes evil with good. And this is the love that we are called to embody, to grow in, and may God grant us the grace to do so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, your Son, Jesus, has called us to what feels like an impossible task. We feel our hearts doing a variety of things. Some might feel their hearts hardening some might feel their hearts cracking and breaking. Others might feel their hearts expanding and getting larger. I pray that in all cases, your love will overcome our animosity and hostility. That your love will make us sensitive to the needs of others. To remind us that Christ Jesus gave his life for them. That the Father sent Jesus into the world out of love for the world. And that the spirit of love works in and through the church to draw all kinds of people to the Lord Jesus. We are aware that there are many in the world who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And that is what breaks our hearts at the deepest level. But we pray that through the love exhibited by the church, even enemies of the cross will become friends of Jesus. 
and that the family of God may grow and increase in number throughout the world. And we pray that the world will stand amazed at the love of God that is at work in Jesus and his church, and that the hearts of many will be changed and won by this spirit of love. These things we ask and pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.